0: We've entitled the message this morning at the Red Sea. Just let's unite our hearts together. A short word of prayer as we come to this passage. Father in heaven, we bless thee again for thy presence. Thank you, Lord, for these hymns of Zion. Lord, help us to be still and know that thou art God. And we pray, Lord, that thou might teach us, you know, as we come to this passage. Give us understanding. Praying that thy Holy Spirit will be poured out not only upon the congregation, but Lord, upon the preacher. I pray, Lord, you'd fill me with the power of thy Spirit. I would anoint us with that fresh oil from above that we might preach us thus. And thus saith the Lord. Give help, we pray. We ask in our Saviour's name. Amen. We have reason to say that the miracle that occurred at the Red Sea is one of the most important passages in the entire canon of God's Word. A.W. Pink, one of the commentators, even suggested that the miracle occurs, or occupies, I should say, a similar position in the Old Testament to that of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Because both of them, in equal measure, demonstrate uh, the power of God. And maybe that is borne out when you consider the various authors that make reference to this miracle at the Red Sea and also the different places where it is mentioned. I'm not going to give you a a comprehensive uh, catalogue of that, but I do want to give you one or two references. You think, for example, of Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 10. It reads like this. Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep? that hath made the depths of the sea away for the ransomed to pass over. And so there uh, clearly is a reference to the very passage where we're coming to at this time. If you go further even down, the, the, uh, further away in, ta- in terms of time, the timeline, Nahum chapter 1 verse 3, "...the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked." The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and dryeth up all the rivers. And again, there are references to this great miracle, even in what is called one of the minor prophets. And then you consider, men and women, that the very enemies of the Lord and the enemies of Israel, they also heard what had taken place at the Red Sea. And that is confirmed by what Rahab says to the soldiers that she hid on the top of her, of her house. Joshua chapter 2 and verse 9. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land and that your terror has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt And what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sion, and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and the earth beneath. And so there's testimony again that what had happened at the Red Sea, it actually was conveyed to the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And you, of course, remember that we're not in the day of telephones, or we're not in the day of, uh, of transport by car and all of that, but the message uh, of what had happened at the Red Sea, it was heard hundreds of miles away. It was known among the inhabitants of Canaan. The miracle not only left an impression in Israel, the miracle left an impression also upon the heathen. And so therefore, it should not surprise us that this is the very focus of attack from the devil and from his crowd because they seek to pour doubt upon it. They try to say that Israelites, they were to cross over uh, in shallow water. And men and women, I'm not really going to waste time arguing against that uh, foolishness. I'll just leave it to a little boy. A little boy in the classroom one day was to answer the teacher who was trying to tell him. A minister actually was trying to say that. That they walked over in shallow water. And he put his hand up and he said, Sir, it still was a miracle. He said, well, how do you work that out? Because he says, I read that all the Egyptians were drowned. So they're drowned in shallow water. You see, the skeptics make more problems than they, than they have with their own notions than they do if they actually believe what God's Word says. And so, we want to look at a very different thought, and that is, you consider this, I'll throw this out to you, wherever we come across waters in the Scriptures, it speaks of a change in the world. It speaks of a change in the world. First occurrence, of course, of waters is found in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. And that was to bring about a change to this world as the waters were gathered together and they were called seas and there was the formation of the dry land. You think also of the time of Noah and the waters at that time. And again, the old world perished. It was a change of worlds. You think of the last reference to waters in the Scriptures in the Revelation and John records of the new heavens and the new earth and there was no more sea. And men and women, that tells us that there will be no more division, no more parting. It will be a new day with the new heavens and the new earth. The worlds will never change again. And you know, that thought falls neatly into the the same thinking that we find in this chapter, this passage that we have been reading. What Israel faced, what they were to cross, would mean a changed world for them. They were leaving behind Egypt, the world of Egypt, the slavery, the bondage, and all of that, and they were moving into completely new circumstances. But before we get them across the Red Sea, I want us to see what happened at the Red Sea. So we'll have to take a bit more time in getting them across. We'll not get them across this morning, but we will get them across, God willing, sometime. I want you to see firstly here the direction. We have considered how they moved from Succoth to Etham at the end, edge of the wilderness. They were to sacrifice unto the Lord in that desert place. They were to serve the Lord in Mount Horeb. And that meant them traversing that desert land. But the thing that we must note here, particularly from the opening words, is that they are now directed off that course. The direction by which they were to go was commanded by the Lord. You look at verse 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Piharoth and between Migdal and the sea over against Baal, Beel, Zephon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. Here's something that was commanded by God. Here's something that was important. Moses heard this message. The way in which they were to go was in accordance to God's will. They were to head to Piharoth. Piharoth was on the west side of the Red Sea. That means they were to turn from the edge of the wilderness. This path led them down the west side of the Red Sea, when it might have seemed that they should have been on the other side, if they were going to Horeb and if they were going on into the land of Canaan. But men and women, it was God's will. God commanded this, you see. And sometimes God does lead us in ways we may not understand. Not right. And if the people of God don't always understand the way in which the Lord is laid in us, you can be sure that the world doesn't understand. The world may even laugh at it. The world's values don't understand the ways of God. And so if you find yourself in a similar situation and God has taken you in a different direction, maybe to what you thought or or, or what you expected, then encourage yourself to know, I'm in the will of God. And to know that God's wisdom never does make any mistakes. And he wasn't making a mistake here, as we will see. For note this direction was contrary to human reasoning. It was contrary to the human thinking. It was an unexpected path as far as Israel was concerned. In the ordinary scheme of things, they would have continued on the same path, not turned from it as we've read in verse 2. But to continue down the west side would lead them further away from the wilderness, further away from Canaan, or at least that's how the human mind would have thought of it. But Moses was not only commanded to take this route, as the Lord spake on them, but remember the closing verses of the previous chapter, the cloudy pillar also led them that way. The cloudy pillar was, was constantly, continually with them to lead them by day, the pillar of fire by night. They had this twofold witness that they were going in the right direction that would eventually uh, cause them to encamp by the Red Sea. And men and women, when God leads in a direction that seems contrary to you and seems contrary to your thinking, then he will make it abundantly clear. We never have to guess where to go or what to do. It will be obvious. It will be plain to us. And you'll not have to twist scriptures to get an answer as to the case, as is the case with some today who makes, make strange decisions and they back it up with even stranger habits and behavior, but who can't justify their actions from any scriptures. If God has taken you another way, a different route and what you expected, he'll make it clear. Young people, you can depend on the Lord. What university course to take if you go that direction or if you go into the workplace. Be sensitive to the Lord's leading. Just think what this may have looked like to Moses. Moses was supposed to be leading him, and yet it looked like he was making a big mistake. He was turning them from the path that they were on. He was guiding them toward the sea. And furthermore, in the opposite direction to where Canaan was. And no doubt there maybe were those amongst them, and they were questioning his judgment, and they may have been quick to say, I know better than this man that's supposed to be leading us. It's easy to lead a people in the direction which they think is right. The problem comes when it seems contrary to human reasoning. Even though it's in accordance to God's will. And you, maybe you can get that within the church circumstances, the church circle. And you wonder sometimes, where's the, where's the oversight? Where's the eldership leading us? It's not the way that I would think. But if it's in accordance to God's will, listen, it's the right direction. This was also a great test for the multitude. As they saw that cloud turn, would they follow with the same determination? Would they follow with the same quiet resolve as they had done so previously? And sometimes God might test our own resolve to prove us whether we will be just as obedient to the revealed will of God or not, or whether we will follow Him only when it's convenient. The direction they were going. You see, it would bring forth a conclusion from Pharaoh. Verse 3. For Pharaoh will save the children of Israel. They're entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. There's two reasons why Israel were to go this way. One, they would lure, lure Pharaoh after them. Two, they would exalt the Lord. Pharaoh would be motivated to follow Israel when he heard where they had gone to. He was regretting that he ever allowed them to leave as his slaves. And so were his servants. That is even after all the devastation that the plagues had caused in the land. And he would pursue them because he believed now Israel are in a cul-de-sac. They're in a place where they can't get out. Notice the words that we read in verse 3. They were entangled. See that word entangled? It means confused. It means to be perplexed. Pharaoh would draw the conclusion, Israel haven't a clue where they're going. They don't know what they're doing. They're confused. What he didn't know was that this was God's will to lure him to a foolish and to a fatal pursuit of Israel. God was overruling. The second word that's used in verse 3, you'll notice, he says, they're entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. The sense of shutting them in is they're cornered. So Pharaoh concluded, Israel are confused and Israel are cornered. They're trapped. They've turned into a dead end. The mountain range is on their right and in front of them and to the left is the Red Sea. The only way out for them is to retreat and that will be straight into the hands of the great armies of Egypt. Pharaoh was a, with a hardened heart from the Lord and with a bloodthirstiness could only see a helpless victim, a quick slaughter of many of them and the rest of them taken back as slaves. It would be the easiest battle he thought he was going to face. And yet through it all, God would bring glory to himself, You look at verse 4. It says, And I, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. The Lord himself will be honored in all. The judgment that was coming upon Pharaoh and his armies would exalt God. You know, men and women, all men will honor God. Some will do it by obedience, many like Pharaoh will honor God only through judgment because of their disobedience, but i 'll still honor God and Dear people, the glory of God is to be our supreme purpose in all our actions that 's a little word for our heart this morning first Corinthians ten and verse. 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. You'll ask yourself the question, do I honor, do I glorify God by going into the ice cream parlor on a Sunday afternoon? I think you know the answer to that. Whether we eat or drink, whatsoever we do, whatsoever we do. Do it to the glory of God. Let me ask you before we go on, is the direction you're going spiritually? Honoring and glorifying the Lord. Let that question settle on your heart. It's a challenge to each one, a challenge to the preacher, as well as to every one of his people. I want you to notice here the desperation. Between a rock and a hard place. I'm sure you've often heard that phrase as well. You could write it over this passage for Israel. Well, you, you might have expected, not expected, to see the little phrase that we read there in verse eight. It says, "And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He pursued after the children of Israel. Listen to this: and the children of Israel or the children of Israel went out with an high hand." You might not have expected to see that little last phrase in that verse. They went out with a high hand simply means they went out with confidence. They went out with courage. They went out triumphantly. And even Numbers chapter 33 tells us that they went out and they did so in the sight of all the Egyptians. They walked in victory in front of their enemy. But you can be sure that when we have the ascendancy over the devil, when we get the victory over that temptation or another temptation, you can be sure it's saying that we need to be in our guard against the next attacks. Wasn't that the case with the Savior? Remember we read in Matthew chapter 3 how the Savior was baptized in River Jordan. The Holy Ghost came upon him like a dove. The voice from heaven was to hear was to be heard to be saying... This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. But the very next words that we read was, "The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil." The attack came after, straight after the blessing, and the same order is found here. After Israel came out with great confidence, courageously, triumphantly, it was then that they're brought into the place of desperation, because they were pursued. Who did the pursuing? Look at verse 5. It's told the king of Egypt that the people fled. The heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. They said, "Why have you done this?" that we have let Israel go from serving us. And he made ready his chariot, took his people with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. Number, verse 9, the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camping by the sea beside Perheroth before Ziphon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. Pharaoh took the best. Pharaoh took the rest of his army with him. The best consisted of 600 chosen chariots. That was the very elite of the Egyptian army. And then there were the reserves. There were the others, if you like. And there was captains over every one of them. All the horsemen. All his army. And we labor that point because it shows us just how great is the judgment that was to be meted out upon Egypt at the Red Sea. This wasn't a matter just of a handful coming. Pharaoh got his chosen men, his chosen elite, and the rest of them. And he brought them to pursue after the Israelites. One said, one described it as the most potent armed forces in the world at that time. And they're now pursuing Israel. Men and women, young people, does it not teach us just how much devastation sin causes? Allow sin to continue like Pharaoh did. And it amasses a great destruction upon mankind. It sends multitudes to hell for all eternity. Our problem today in dealing with sin is not being too strict. It's being too lenient. That's our problem. But God's not lenient with sin. As you see this picture in your mind's eye of the amassing of the armies of Egypt. Notice in their desperation there was prayer. Prayer. And this is commendable. They lifted up their eyes. They looked behind them and all they could see was the Egyptians marching after them. The amassed forces of Pharaoh and there was nowhere they could go. And so we read at the end of verse 10 that they cried unto the Lord. No surprise that they were so afraid. They knew full well the intentions of Pharaoh. They knew how bloodthirsty he would be. They were defenseless. But you know this all caused them to lift their voice to the Lord. Matthew Henry commentator said this, their fear set them a praying and that was a good effect of it. Is there any better action that we can take when circumstances prevail against us? There's a tight situation that you or I find ourselves in. The enemy has approached and has come in like a flood. Then lift up your voice to God in prayer. Lift up your voice to God in prayer. Don't have a being the second or third or fourth thing you do, do it immediately. We gain nothing by delaying in seeking God's help. In wisdom, it's wisdom to turn immediately to God in prayer. And that's what Israel did here. And it's commendable. But you know, sadly, their wisdom didn't last. Because they then speak of their prediction against Moses. You look at verse 11. After having lifted their voice to God, they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt? Didn't we tell you this, Moses? Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. There was encouraging signs when they're praying to God, but quickly that seems to disappear. And the fleshly response takes over and they start to point, uh, point, put the accusing finger to Moses. Why did you bring us out? Didn't we tell you back there in Egypt? Moses was to blame for bringing him what they said would be a burial site. But if that wasn't bad enough, they then boast in their unbelief-filled predictions As we read there in the words of verse 12, Is this not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. If they knew so much, why did they ever follow Moses in the first place? And to add insult to injury, they make very little of the present circumstances. They said it had been better to serve the Egyptians. It was a statement that was so short-sighted. Had they forgotten the bondage? Had they forgotten the affliction? Had they forgotten the whips on their back? Had they forgotten how the baby boys were thrown into the river Nile? Men and women, how much unbelief misjudges our circumstances. They were on the very cusp here of seeing a mighty display of God's uh, almighty power and give Israel one of the greatest moments in their history. Yet all that they saw were circumstances they thought were so bad that Egypt and slavery were better. Can you believe that? What they failed to do was putting God into those circumstances. And you know, we shouldn't point the finger too much because so often we make the same mistake. Whatever that circumstance is in your life, and you try to get your way through it, and you try to think over it and go through it, and how am I going to get through this? And we leave God out. It's like Joshua coming over in his reconnaissance trip and he looks at the great city of Jericho and he's standing there and there's the enemy and and the people's behind him. And you know, he then sees someone standing in front of him. And he says, are you for us or against us? I'm paraphrasing it. It turned out it was the Lord. It was the captain of salvation. The captain of the army, of the Lord of hosts. And men and women, get that that vision into your mind because there's the answer to every problem. Between you and whatever the problem is, see the Lord. Just see the Lord. And Joshua realized, of course, it was the Lord himself. He drew the shoes off his feet, bowed before him. God gave the victory over that great city of Jericho. The problem and the mistake we make is we don't bring God into the circumstances. What a difference it is when we do. There's one final thought here this morning. That is the deliverance. You just just stand there as it were. You hear what the crowd has said unto Moses. You see the desperation. They're so afraid. They look back and they see the armies of... Of Egypt marching. They look to this side and they see the Red Sea. They look around them, there's the mountain range. They're in a tight spot and they accuse Moses of bringing them to a burial ground in the wilderness. But you see the response that Moses gives to them. He doesn't chastise them, he doesn't chide them, he gives them a, an encouraging word. Verse 13 it's a word of peace. Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not. That's exactly what they needed. Fear ye not. You take those words and think of them. Moses was exhorting them to get above their fears as they looked back, as they saw the encroaching Egyptian army. How necessary it is, a message of fear not. You know, if there's, if there's fear in our hearts, men and women, if we have no peace there, and we don't do well. The sinner doesn't do well this morning because they have no peace with God in their heart. There's no rest to the wicked, saith the Lord of hosts. And it was a message that we find given to many in the scriptures. You think of Abram, for example, God said, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Joshua was also here to hear it after the defeat of Ahai. It was a message given to Gideon. It was given to David. It was given to Isaiah. It was given by the very angels at the incarnation of Christ. They came to the shepherds and they said, Fear not, bring you good tidings of great joy. Can we not say that the Lord also has a fear not for us this morning? Luke 12, verse 32 says this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. When it comes to death, the psalmist David could say in a well-known psalm, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. When God tells us not to fear, that's what we should do, even though the circumstances around us would say otherwise. So the message, first and foremost, for Moses was fear not. But you'll see the message of their deliverance was also involving patience. He says, fear not, stand still. Stand still. Verse 14. Hold your peace. Has, has really the sense of be silent. Men and women, the flesh always wants to do something. The flesh always wants to be on the go. You try to imagine this scene where Israel are shut in and it seems there's no way of escape from this bloodthirsty army. The flesh would be saying the very opposite. We can't wait. We can't stay still. We've got to do something. We can't do nothing. But Israel needed to stand still. Because if they stood still, they would see God work. And they would see that God would open up the very sea before them. If they had got excited, then there would have been a disorganized chaos. Patience waits for God's orders, it waits for God's time, and it waits for God's way. Peace, patience. What else in the message? The promises. You see, the message was the promises of their deliverance. There are two promises that Moses makes to Israel in verse 13. Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. They were going to see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord shall fight for you, verse 14. Israel were being assured of being saved. Pharaoh would not slay them. God was on their side. God had guided them to this very place. From the words of verse 2, that's why we labored it. Not to mock them. Not to have them destroyed. But to fight for them when they were attacked. And he was exhorting them to see with the eye of faith. This is not about... By the way, if you, this well-known verse, fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's not a physical eyesight that Moses is speaking about there. It's the eye of faith. They weren't to walk by sight. By sight, all they saw was a Red Sea in front of them. But by faith, because faith, of course, is the evidence of things not seen. And by faith, we read in Hebrews, they were to walk through the Red Sea. The second promise. Not only would they be delivered and see the salvation of God, the second promise was that Egyptians would be destroyed. The Egyptians whom ye see today, ye shall see them again no more forever. Now, but Moses didn't reveal how that would happen. Maybe he didn't know, but he believed God. And that promise too was gloriously fulfilled. For us, we're going to see the last place that Israel saw the Egyptians would be floating in the Red Sea. They'd never be troubled with them again. What a word in season! What a word in season for our own hearts as the people of God. What a word in season this morning for those that are in bondage to their sin. To know God's salvation, man or woman, young person, if you're not seeing it, you must first of all renounce all fleshly attempts. Israel had to stand still. They had to fear not. They had to trust the Lord. They would see the salvation of the Lord. And you've got to finish with all attempts that you can make to get to heaven yourself but instead look by faith to what Christ already has accomplished. And he's accomplished and he's finished the work at the cross of Calvary. Why? Because there he fought the enemy. He fought the enemy of your soul and he was to overcome the devil. His head was bruised. And through the blood of his cross, you can have peace. You can be reconciled to a holy God today. You can know deliverance for your soul right now. Oh, men and women, young person, don't look inward. Don't look outward. Look upward. Look upward. Look upward to God this morning. And it's the same message to the child of God. Uh, Maybe there's an affliction in your life that I know nothing about. Don't look inward. Don't try to work it out yourself. Don't look outward. That'll discourage you. Look to God. You want God's way. And you want God's answer. I pray the Lord might richly bless even that word to our hearts this morning.